Hello, and welcome to Law, the Universe, and Everything. I'm your host, Pacifico Soldati. The show explores topics from law and business to consciousness, spirituality, and everything in between. We feature accomplished leaders across many fields to help you get more out of your life. You can learn more and stay up to date at theluepodcast.com. If you're not familiar with my background, I'm a helper, parent, marketer, attorney outlaw, certified mediator, story brand guide, omnist, yoga teacher, and a former paratrooper and award-winning army chef at the 82nd Airborne Division and U.S. Army Special Operations Command. I'm the founder and CEO of the Soldati Group, a marketing agency helping startups, small businesses, and law firms leverage the power of story to grow their businesses. Law, Universe, and Everything is a production of the Soldati Group. All opinions expressed by the hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of the Soldati Group or guest employers. This podcast is for information and entertainment purposes only, and these discussions do not constitute legal or investment advice. Today's episode is brought to you by the Transcendental Meditation Technique. If you've meditated before but always felt like there was something missing, then it's time for you to learn how to practice TM. Visit tm.org to find a teacher near you. My guest today is Bob Ginsberg. Bob started researching the evidence for survival of consciousness soon after his daughter died in 2002. Devastated by the loss, he needed science to tell him if she still existed in some form. In 2004, Bob and his wife Fran founded Forever Family Foundation at foreverfamilyfoundation.org, a global not-for-profit that educates the public about evidence that we are more than our physical bodies. Bob hosts the Signs of Life radio show is past editor of Signs of Life magazine, heads the foundation's medium evaluation certification program, writes a blog at beyondthefivesenses.com, and is the author of The Medium Explosion. Bob, Fran, and the foundation are currently featured in the Netflix docuseries Surviving Death. Sadly, Fran passed to the spirit realm on September 22nd, 2020, but Bob continues the work that they started together. Welcome to the show, Bob. Thanks so much for being here. Oh, thank you. It's my pleasure. Well, before we jump into all the amazing stuff about consciousness and surviving it and all that, I'd love to know, before you got into this side of things, what did you do and what was the journey like into this uh, sphere? 20 years ago, I was like a lot of people. I was leading a very materialistic life, lived in the suburbs, had the family, had a big house, had all the toys. And if you would have said to me that there was a likelihood that we survived after we physically died, I just would have dismissed it and, and said, nah, it's just wishful thinking. That's like tooth fairy stuff. And it's not possible because that's the way I was educated. I was a left brain thinker. We were our brains. If our brains would know more, that meant that we would know more. I was ignorant of any of the evidence of which I'm now aware. I get it when I talk to people today and they give me that glazed look because I was one of them. Uh, you know, of course, things change. As you mentioned in, in the intro, my daughter passed in a car accident in 2002. And uh, the morning of the accident, in which my son and my, my daughter were involved in, my wife, friend woke up at 3 o'clock in the morning just popped straight up and was shaking and she was ashen white. And I said, what's the matter? And she said, something horrible is going to happen today. And I said, well, what does that mean? What, what Can you tell me more? And she couldn't 
exactly give me any details. You just said it's, it's going to be, today's going to be utterly devastating. And of course, I didn't technically believe in any of this stuff, but there were many times in our lives together where Fran had these precognitive moments of things. They all were good things, but they all turned out to be true exactly the way she described. So I took it seriously, but to make a long story short, I let my guard down at night, and that's when my son and my daughter were in an accident. My daughter didn't survive, and my son was seriously injured. And after it became clear about a month later that my son was going to survive his injuries, I remembered that day, that the morning of the accident. And then I said, how did Fran know? Because there was no doubt in my mind that she knew. She was shaking. And that started me on a quest to meeting with medical doctors and scientists around the United States who studied consciousness. And I learned as much as I could. I read literally, you know, hundreds upon hundreds of, of books. I participated in research. And that was the beginning of, of my journey. Wow, that's incredibly powerful. Yeah, this is absolutely a, a favorite topic of mine. And I've been on, let's say, a journey of spiritual awakening for 20 some odd years, fueled by everything from psychedelics to spiritual guides. But I think this past year, it, being introduced to the work of Dr. Brian Weiss and his work doing past life regressions, I think he's actually kind of down in your neck of the woods in Florida. And that has really exploded my understanding of what is actually out there. And it is fascinating to discover you know, the vast wealth of what I believe to be proof of, you know, transcending consciousness and having an immortal soul. You look at things like xenoglossy in children, children who are born with the ability to speak foreign languages that they've never been exposed to, I think is one of the strongest uh, pieces of evidence that, you know, all that we perceive in general and all that we're taught, like you were talking about, is not all that there is. And so I'd love to hear sort of your thoughts on what are some of the best and your favorite evidence that you've come across over the years? Yeah, there are, we're interested in a lot of disciplines of research, perhaps number one on the list are near-death experiences. And most people have heard the term today, not so much many years ago. Although there is a, a body of research of people reporting, even though they didn't call it a near-death experience, going back a hundred years, there were books, you know, written about these experiences that people had. I think the reason that I find the near-death experience to be so compelling in terms of evidence of survival is that you have people that meet every single definition that medical science lays forth regarding what constitutes death. So people have no heartbeat. Yeah. Did I lose you? I'm still here. People have no heartbeat. They have no respiration. They have no brain waves. They have no reflexes. There's no heart activity. So they meet every single definition of physical death. And yet, because of the resuscitative techniques that we have today, many people are brought back to life and they describe in vivid detail these clear and lucid experiences. And, and there are not everybody has the same experiences, but there are some commonalities that are prevalent among a broad you know, base of experiences. And you've heard of things like people describe seeing a light at the end of a tunnel, being greeted by loved ones who are already deceased, having being imbued with, with great, great clarity and knowledge, floating above their bodies and seeing what's going on. And there have been cases of near-death experiences that have been blind, sightless since birth. And yet 
they're, they're in the operating arena and when they come back, they're able to describe the colors that everybody was wearing and the activity that went on in the room and the conversations that were had and so forth. It really is pretty significant. And there, there are explanations that skeptics will give. Like they say, well, it's just oxygen deprivation, anoxia, and, and that's causing the these hallucinations. But if you know anything about that, what happens, people that are suffering from oxygen deprivation, they have anything but clear and lucid thinking. They're thrashing all about, it's all disjointed, they're hallucinating, and it's not anything like what people describe. So the evidence is, is really strong. It's broad. It's been going on for decades now. And I think that it, it presents a, a strong case that we're much more than our physical bodies. We're not our brains because theoretically our, we shouldn't be able to experience the things that we experience if our brains are, are, are no longer active. You move in, I mean, there's near-death experiences. People have these end-of-life experiences like deathbed visions where in that window, um, either just before death or in the week or two leading up to death, they are visited by deceased loved ones and they can see them. Occasionally, visitors in the room can see them as well, but that's a rarity. And the people that are dying have great comfort in, in seeing the, these deceased uh, loved ones. They have conversations with them. And the theory would be that we all have um, some sort of an escort into the next world because it may be that everybody has an end-of-life experience like that, but they're just either physically or mentally uh, incapacitated to be able to express it, but that doesn't mean that they're not having the same experience. Neither and the other forms that you've touched upon, past life regression, there have been, there's been reincarnation research going on for the past 60 or 70 years. Ian Stevenson at the University mm. of Virginia his work is now done by Dr. Jim Tucker. And these cases of children who remember, have past life memories, the investigators, uh, the researchers, they take on the role of detective. You have a child that remembers clearly about his past life, and then the researcher will pull medical records or actually go to the house that they remember and, and build this whole case. And the evidence is overwhelming for that. There are many different types of, of evidence, and it's easy to dismiss any one discipline of research. It's a coincidence, write it off, but when you step back and you look at the whole body of evidence as a whole, surviving physical death is the only explanation that seems to make sense. You just can't ignore the, the totality of the evidence. Oh, I totally agree. Yeah, of course, there's going to be skeptics and there's people that are always going to, they're going to want to have some other explanation, especially for people who can't yet fully see that. I think that's why I'm always so persuaded, especially by people who were skeptics and then had some sort of like really crazy experience. And it's like, oh, like, actually, I know this to be true now. And I think I know you do some work with like mediums and stuff. And I think that's another really significant discipline to look at, because when you look at something like an evidential medium, that without any cold reading can, you know, take someone, take a client that walks in and then they're suddenly saying, oh, I'm seeing, I'm talking to, they'd like you to know X, Y, and Z. And then they provide evidence that the medium absolutely could not know if they were not, unless they were communicating with someone from beyond. And I really don't think there's much explanation for those kinds of things, but like with anything, psychics and stuff, like it, it attracts charlatanism, of course. And so it's, 
trying to separate the wheat from the chaff there. But I think it's important to teach people about these things so that they can start to realize, oh, wait, even if there's people trafficking and bullshit, there is a vast body of evidence for the objective reality of whether it's surviving consciousness or reincarnation or, or what have you. Yeah, I, and I think you're right. I know uh, you were kind enough to mention my book, The Medium Explosion, and I wrote that book uh, for just the very reasons that, that you're mentioning. I'll point out in the book, I didn't, I wasn't too popular for, for saying it, but in my experience over all these years and working with mediums and evaluating them under controlled conditions, in my estimation, 85 to 90 percent of the mediums in practice today cannot do what they claim. That's not to say that they're or fraudulent or cheaters or whatever. It's just that they have some intuitive ability, as do we all, but it's not, this, their skills are not honed to the point where they can communicate with, with the dead, at least not on a reliable basis. And I get into some of the reasons for that, the ways in which we theorize that mediums are able to do what they do. But, but as you just mentioned, there are some elite class of, of, of mediums, that 10%, that absolutely can and do so at a very, with a very high level degree of proficiency. And it's hard to refute it. They do it consistently. Of course, there's no guarantee in the process. And you have three parties at work. You have the person in the spirit realm, you have the medium and you have the sitter. And if they're all not resonating or cooperating, it's not going to happen. But what we've witnessed over the years, the top mediums, they very rarely uh, do not, you know, connect. So they're more consistent than most. And mediumship also has the power to change uh, and transform one's grief. And I can't tell you how many times we've witnessed people in horrible, devastating grief that can barely function in their lives have an extraordinary medium reading with very specific evidence and walk away changed, not to suggest that it's some sort of miracle cure for grief. That's absurd, but it can make a difference because what could possibly more be effect, uh, could be more effective in grief therapy than the belief or knowledge that your loved one still exists? That's better than medication and all sorts of, of techniques that the psychotherapists use. That knowledge can go a long way in enabling somebody to navigate their physical lives with some meaning and purpose where they had none before. Yeah, it is interesting, yeah, it is interesting how, there's how there's this therapeutic, therapeutic effect, effect to just knowing, just accepting and realizing on finding some proof that things do go on. I think it's certainly tied up in just everyone's natural fear of death or something. You look at a lot of things that happen in past life regressions as well, that it's just just like if you have some sort of childhood trauma from this lifetime, even just it, say it's a repressed memory, even just uncovering it, even without any processing has its own therapeutic effect. And then you can move from there. And then of course, with a past life regression, there's not really much you can do to like process so you can't go and talk to somebody from that past life to, hey i want to deal with this or something but just the knowledge of something that transpired can really have a huge effect therapeutically on people and so i, I really think like what you're getting to is this use of survival of consciousness as an overall therapeutic approach to make people's lives better to give people meaning yeah absolutely i think that that's all part of it the fact is People do find comfort in, in 
hearing about and, and reading about uh, near-death experiences because that means that their deceased loved one survives too or people find comfort in the reincarnation research and, and the mediumship and so it definitely does have a therapeutic uh, effect and i think that you know there have been some formal studies that show that people that believe in an afterlife do better in their grief overall than those who don't. And that makes a lot of sense. Having said that, we caution mediums though, I mean, that they're not grief therapists and they should never ever give the impression that they are. There are some people that need the services of a, of a trained professional. And if they do, they, sh they should seek that out. But I think if we do change the way that we think about death, that in itself is like cognitive behavior therapy. If you change the way you think, you'll do better. And that's what we hope people will get from the evidence that, that we both uncover and present to the public. Because it is a shame that there's, there's such a, a, a body of evidence, such an abundance of it, and most of it remains unheard of by the, you know, the general public. When I started on this journey, that was the first thing that I just kept saying, I can't believe this. I can't believe everybody doesn't know about this. Or why yeah. is that's because of our our cultural influences, the media, religious influences, our educators, medical scientists. It's still not embraced by the mainstream. However, if you notice today, a lot of physicists are sounding very spiritual when they talk. They're coming to realize the same thing that the ancients knew that we're we're trying to relearn right now. Yeah, that was actually one of the you know, fascinating things earlier this year, I finally got trained uh, to do transcendental meditation. And one of the things I learned was that the Maharishi was actually a physicist by training. And that was one of the reasons that they were so big on, you know, having TM evaluated from a scientific standpoint and do a you know, variety of research studies on it. And now his you know, hand-chosen successor, Dr. Tony Nader, he just released a book called One Unbounded Ocean of Consciousness. And he essentially makes the argument that our brains do not create consciousness. We just experience it through it. And that the sort of baseline layer of reality is just an unbounded ocean of consciousness, which you can reach through TM, various psychedelics and other practices as well that might take a lot longer than TM does, which is pretty immediate. And so it flips everything on its head and it just says that everything is emergent from this. And so being able to tap back into it, it really helps to explain all of these different things like past life regressions and, and mediums and surviving consciousness and everything. Because if we are, if we do have an individuated soul, then it's something you're, you go back into the ether of, of consciousness afterwards, but you maintain that sort of soul memory as you go along your own soul's journey and then whether it's you come here, you come to another planet, there's all sorts of various experiences that that soul can have. And to me, it just makes a lot more of intuitive and even empirical sense once you've actually visited that place. That's, oh yeah, this is something I've actually experienced that feels more real than just, oh, it's nothing. That just, there is no, there is no universal truth of like interconnectivity and stuff like that. I'd seen so much evidence for those things on a variety of psychedelics that can tap you in closer to the nature of reality. But for me, it was like actually practicing TM and transcending for the first time. I was like, oh, wait a minute. This is literally just lurking here within every person and they have no idea. And it's like you said, like when I first learned of the work of Dr. Stevenson, I was like, wait, are you kidding me? He's done this with thousands of kids. 
Like, right. how does nobody know about this? And it's just, it's so wild what's out there. But so much of our society and so many of the institutional powers, like you were talking about, are reliant on people not knowing. Uh, and are, And I think there's so much to a lot of this research that points toward an objective truth that really upends so much of what our society and civilization has been about. Yeah, I totally agree. We work with, and we have worked with many different scientists and medical doctors over the years, and they deserve a lot of credit because they spent the better part of their career studying consciousness and survival specifically, and they put their careers in jeopardy. Many of them had to do the work on the side. Funding is virtually non-existent. When they would write a comprehensive paper and and try to get it into a peer-reviewed journal, they would meet uh, tremendous resistance. It's, it's getting a little bit better now, but it's still very difficult. And I, I don't know eventually when it's going to flip, but it will eventually. Everything runs in cycles. And I think that we all had this knowledge. We still do have it within us, but it got atrophied over the years. Our intuitive senses and this greater awareness. And once we break through that barrier and have this new paradigm of consciousness, we'll revert back to the way we once were. I'm not talking in terms of scientific advances. I'm talking about basic knowledge of who we are and where we're going. Oh, yeah, I I couldn't agree more. It's been really fascinating over the past, I don't know, I'd say nine months getting into TikTok, which I first did just for the previous company I was working for in the green tech industry. And I was like, oh, okay, I got to sort of get this message out there and what we're doing. And pretty quickly from the algorithms, influence got pushed into sort of spiritual side of TikTok. And it was really amazing. The vast number of people, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people having their own spiritual awakenings and coming to a head of sort of an evolution of human spiritual development. And it's been fascinating to me too to watch because there's been a corresponding explosion in atheism, which I really think is a trauma response to organized religion. It's, oh, I don't believe there's some like, old white man with a beard controlling everything. Christianity has had a stranglehold on so much of the world and and popular culture for centuries. And so I think atheism is really a response to that. But I think it's, and I was an atheist for several years growing up in adolescence and going to Catholic school. And I was like, no, this is absolutely not true. And you swing the pendulum so far in the other direction that you end up in atheism rather than, oh, hey, there's there's an infinite number of other options here. But for me, what I think that I've experienced in terms of the work you do as well is that there is a universal truth of whether it's an immortal soul, you know, reincarnation, whatever terms you want to use, there is plenty of evidence for something beyond. And that once you have a personal experience of it, it's really hard to deny. I characterize myself as an omnist. I think I don't think any religion's correct, but I think they all get a few things correct. And it's really, you don't need any gatekeeping. You don't need any organization. You can discover these things for yourself. And so much of it is just from within, right? Like you have your own immortal soul, you have your own consciousness and that all the answers actually lie within there. Uh, But people just aren't necessarily equipped to always go and find them on their own. That's why we seek these external validators and gatekeepers to say, oh, here, read this book. This is the universal truth. This is what God said happened. This is what you need to do. Here are the rules for you. And there's a lot in religious communities that, oh, atheists are immoral, or you couldn't possibly have any type of morality without this system of that is from God. And so you can totally make up your own moral system, like no problem. 
And I think being able to push people into that direction, I think the pendulum will end up swinging back and it'll end up more in line with the, the type of work that you're doing, that people have these experiences and they get more and more press, they get more and more research funding, and that eventually people start to realize, oh, there is something beyond what we're perceiving. Yeah, I, I, I agree. Essentially, all of the organized religions at their core are the same. And a lot of people will tell you that spirituality is just you know, is religion without the rules. So it's all the same, but it's all about control a lot of places. But one of the things that you said is, is so true in that it's it, personal experience. That has the power to flip somebody um, into a, this new understanding because you can read and read and read and you can hear stories, but for many people, it takes you only to a certain point. And it, it's when they have these transcendental type of experiences or, or mediumistic experiences or intuitive thing or, or an amazing synchronicity and it just reinforces it. It takes you to a new level. So I, I think that uh, a lot of people don't get to that point simply because they won't let it happen. In their view of the way things work, it's not possible, so they dismiss it. I remember back whenever, how many years it was, 18, 19 years ago when my daughter passed, I was having all of these things that were happening all around me that could not be explained. And for years, I just kept dismissing and dismissing it because I could not accept it. It just flew in the face of everything that I, that I knew. And that's another reason why today's scientists are so reluctant, because if some of these things are true, their whole education and careers is, is for naught. Everything that they've been taught is not true. There's so much resistance. But I, I agree with you. At some point, we're going to reach that, that tipping point, And I think we're moving closer. Oh, definitely. So on a personal level, in your journey after your daughter's death, how did your research or, or was it seeing a medium, like what kinds of things helped you with that grieving process? To me, and everybody's different, and my wife and I were, were totally different. Everybody grieves in a different way. My wife was a more spiritual person. She didn't, she respected the science, but she did not need the science for her to help her in the grieving process. I, on the other hand, I, I needed it. I, To me, I needed to know that there were very well credentialed professionals who had data that I could that I could assimilate and and I could use in my own you know grieving process and to me reading a book about the research was helpful hearing the evidence about the evidence whether they be empirical or just the massive amounts of anecdotal evidence to me also that I also found that to be helpful so I use that because in a way, every time that I fell into a horrible grief and I dug, you know, I fell into this whole this chasm of despair, I could go through the process in my head. Wait a second. I know about this. I know about that. I know about this. It can't all be wrong. And I could dig myself out. There are others as, as my wife who just had this deep inner knowledge. I don't know whether that was from a past life, whether that was some the oversoul or whatever it is or being able to straddle two worlds, but she she didn't need that. I envied her. She was also highly intuitive, and she, I used to live vicariously through the experiences that she was having, because the one thing in, in the 46 years that we were married, she never once lied to me, never, ever. Yeah. So I knew that 
She's not making any of this shit up. So when she would have these powerful experiences and and I was elated because that helped me. So over the years, I I tell people today, we've grown, we have 11,000 members and have a global presence and we've been able to help a lot of people. I readily admit that I didn't help start the foundation to help people. I did it for my own survival. That morphed over the years where, you know, when I found the only thing that gave me any any degree of comfort or hope was to be able to to help somebody else. But that's not the way it was for the first few years. I was just going through the paces and trying to figure out a way that I was going to make my life work. But I think we're all on somewhat of of this journey. And I think it's important to be an open-minded skeptic. You can't take everything as truth. There's a difference between an open-minded skeptic and a closed-minded skeptic. Closed-minded skeptics are dangerous because they, that's scientism and they, and they just refuse to acknowledge anything that they haven't been taught. But it's important to, by questioning things, you learn and it makes these experiences even more significant because you've ruled out all the physical explanations and it reinforces the the truth of what you experience. Oh, I totally agree. Bob, how has a failure or an apparent failure set you up for later success? And do you have a favorite? Failure in in, in what sense? I mean, my my failures in life were personal tragedies. I look at those as my failures, not that I had any significant control over them, but I think that trauma, whether that be mental trauma or physical trauma, in a sense, even though I would have punched you in the face if you suggested this to me when it happened, but it's a, it's actually can be transformative. It's a trigger for exploration. So I never would have explored anything of this nature had I not been forced to by, by life circumstance. So I think that we, we learn, it's hard to accept when you're in the middle of it, But when you reach that point where you can step back, maybe you can say that there was a purpose in what happened because look at how you've been able to affect change and affect the lives of people out of your own personal tragedies. Having done that, I've learned a lot over the years about how tenuous physical life is and how we stress over the stupidest mundane little things that happen when the next day they disappear from up from our awareness and i've learned to treasure the simple things in life and that's something that stays with you and i think that it's something that we should all strive to take a step back and look at the bigger picture definitely so what are one to three books that have greatly influenced your life? What If you look, if you came to my house right now, I, I have a room uh, that has on the walls uh, about 1,500 books. It's so hard to pick one out because I've interviewed so many people over the years and I was so interested for many years in, in learning as much as I could. Uh, I think that for me, I tend to, I haven't read a fiction book in 20 years when I would always, that's all I would read is fiction. So my favorite books are tend to be a little bit more technical and research oriented books like Bruce Grayson at the University of Virginia and Dean Radin, who writes about consciousness. There have been some wonderful books written by, by psychic mediums on the foundation website for familyfoundation.org. We have a recommended reading page by category, and we probably have about 60 or 70 books up there. They all become a blur to me at some point. 
but there's plenty of material out there. And while you're reading these books, they're powerful. Sometimes it's not long lasting, but it's powerful in the sense that it forces you to change the way that you think and it can make a big difference in the way that you go through your life. Mm, totally agree. Bob, if you could have a gigantic billboard anywhere with anything on it, what would it say and why? I'll tell you what it would say because when my wife ran about the last week of her life or when she was in, we had her in home hospice and the hospice nurse was pay, paying her weekly visit. And when she left, she sent to, she said to, do you have any questions? And at this point, there were really no questions. So I said to her, yeah. I said, what's the meaning of life? And she just looked at me and she didn't know how to take that. And she said, that's a very hard question. And my wife, as sick as she was, just opened the mouth and said, it's not a hard question. It's very simple to make this world a better place or to, to leave this world a better place. I think that's what I would put on, on a billboard. The meaning of life is to leave this world a better place. It sums it up for me. I love that. So what is one of the best or most worthwhile investments that you've ever made? And feel free to take the word investments as liberally. I can, if I take that in a material sense, of course, you, know, you, you think of real estate and things of that nature in a spiritual sense, sense it's, it's just an investment in, 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 in seeking truth. That's the last 20 years. I've been at the beginning, I was tortured by it, finding the meaning and purpose in life. It seems so random. What was there any, is, is there a reason for us being here? I realize this is something that people have been contemplating for, for, through the ages, but it takes an, an investment in time. I gave up all of the physical investment for, for, for a spiritual investment. It's obvious, obviously we can't survive on spirituality alone. We have needs. I mean, we need a place to live and we have, we need food to eat and so forth, but my my investment in, in time is totally away from the physical and more into the spiritual. I'm all in on that simply because that I have no choice. That, that's what I, you know, it has to make some sort of meaning to me on the inside to allow me to, to get up every day. Because there, there was a time when I didn't want to get up every day. Time investment for me is, is totally about the, the spiritual end of things. And that's what I contemplate constantly and every day. Oh, same here. Bob, what advice would you give to a smart, driven you know, college or a high school graduate about to enter the real world? And is there any advice that they should ignore? Um, you know, I, I think the advice is just to remember that it's all about balance, that there's nothing wrong with materialism and there's nothing wrong with making money. But there, there is danger in, in going too far one, one way or the other. I grew up, I went to college in the, in the late 60s and it was all free love and drugs. If I had stayed the way that I was in 1968 or 1969, um, <laughs> I don't know where I would be because there it was, it was all on one side. There wasn't any balance at all. Then I lived the other life where everything was about making money and I led the corporate life and I wasn't balanced there either. I didn't treasure the simple things that were put before me. So I think that in everything that you do, you always have to remember to keep things in balance and that's the only healthy way to navigate your physical life. Definitely.
So who've been some of your heroes throughout your life and how have they helped or inspired you? Heroes are, of course, as, as, as a lot of kids growing up, my heroes were all sports figures. But today my my heroes are, are, are researchers. I think our heroes change as, as we move along. My true heroes have been my family. Maybe I didn't always recognize that, but those are the only true heroes that matter. My daughter taught me so many things in so many ways that I that I always, I didn't realize some of it, unfortunately, I didn't realize until it was too late. Well, I say too late in the sense that I couldn't discuss these with her. And then now I reflect back and my wife's been gone almost a, a year and we spent 47 years together. And, and I think of so many things that, that she taught me that I was so close-minded about and I wish I had done more. But that's, those are the true heroes. The true heroes are the ones that do things just just because that's what they do. And they're not asking for recognition or they're not trying to teach you a lesson. And you can only hope to appreciate it. It's hard for me to pick out a hero that I have today because nothing compare, compares with the family that, you know, that I have. No, that's beautiful. I love that answer. Bob, what are your go-to self-care strategies, tactics, and techniques? To me, I don't, I learned not to plan and strategize. There's a certain amount of, of planning that I need to do in, in, in running our foundation. But to me, life has taught me that long-term planning is life is so elusive that, yeah, you could have a general framework, but you have to bear in mind that things that you plan most likely are, are never going to happen the way that you think that, that what they will, that they will. So I, in terms of everyday coping strategies for me, it's just to try to learn a little bit more each day. I like to, so I'll, that's a strategy for me in a sense that if I, sometimes I feel like I just got to explode. So I'll just write a blog or something just to get some of these thoughts out because when you keep them inside too much, I don't think that's healthy. But I, I after working in a physical job for, for so many years and now, you know, I've, I live on an island and I'm, uh, I'm surrounded by nature and I just try to step back and see in between the dots and, and just experience instead of judge. I did too much judging all my life and judging and reasoning. You get into trouble when you do too much of that. I think it has more to do with experience than it does with, with intellectual reasoning. We do too much intellectual reasoning instead of just taking things and, and for what they are and learning from that. Totally agree. So, Bob, it's been an absolute pleasure and a really fun and enlightening conversation. And that brings me to my final question of the day. And that is, what is the kindest thing anyone has ever done? It'll sound silly. Since I've been involved in the bereavement and grief, in addition to the survival work, the kindest thing that anybody's ever done is just not say anything and just give you a hug. No, pl no platitudes, no, no, no advice, just a look in their eyes and an understanding, no words, just a hug. I think hugging has a lot of, has a lot of value and a lot of meaning to it. It's a beautiful answer. It's the first time someone said that. I love that. Yeah. Sometimes it's not what you expect, right? <laughs> oh yeah. No, those are always the best, right? Yeah. Bob, thank you again so much for joining me today. Uh, it's been awesome getting to speak with you about one of my favorite topics. Same here. I enjoyed it very much. Excellent. So today's episode was brought to you by TM.org. If you're ready to experience the beauty of transcendence, then it's time for you to learn how to practice TM. 
Visit tm.org to find a teacher near you. Thank you so much to all of our listeners for tuning in to today's show. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you found us so that others can find it as well. And follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at the LUE Podcast or visit our website at theluepodcast.com. And if you'd like to support this show even further, I'd love to invite you to become a patron of the show. For as little as $5 per month, you can help us continue to produce high-quality shows with amazing guests like you heard today. To become a patron, please visit patreon.com slash the LUE podcast. We look forward to having you tune in next time for the next episode of Law, the Universe, and Everything. I'm Pacifico Soldati, wishing you peace, love, and awesomeness. Peace.